If you are a visitor here, I would like to welcome you. And if you're not normally in church and you're wondering what's going on, um, one of the things that we do is we believe that God speaks to us through his word, the Bible, and it's uh, my task, my job, my pleasure to bring God's word to you. And as we listen to this, it may be that you have questions or you don't agree or you don't understand um, Again, if you, if you are new here, don't worry about that. That's a normal experience for all of us. But you can uh, feel free at the end. If you want to just talk to me about anything, feel free to do so. Now, we're going to look at Romans chapter 6. And um, we are going to look at the whole chapter, but not this morning. Uh, I will do up to verse 14, I hope, this morning. And then uh, this evening, we're going to have a part 2 which will be from verse 15 to verse uh, 23. So the idea is, if you've ever watched the series 24, uh, it always finishes on a high note with a big explosion and what happened next so that people go on to the next bit. So I'll try and finish on a high note with a big explosion so you wonder what's going to happen next, I hope. Um, But let me introduce this in in, in this way. A couple of years ago, uh, there was a, a tragic killing of the MP Joe Cox and um, her husband uh, started up a couple of charities and he was often invited onto different things and um, basically was regarded as a saint. Well, those of you who follow the news know that uh, this weekend he's been forced to resign from those charities because of what is euphemistically called uh, inappropriate behavior. The most astonishing thing about that is he was being interviewed by loads and loads of people who all knew that he had done these things. And MPs and everyone, they all, and it it seems as though when we do things, when you switch on the news, you just hear the the next person to fall and the next person to fall. Uh, Maybe Oxfam, for example, well, surely in Oxfam it would be okay. Well, Hugh has been out in Haiti, and uh, what happened with some of the Oxfam workers out in Haiti is absolutely appalling. And as I hear these things, and I hear people on the radio and on the news talking about them, it always strikes me that one thing that's wrong in the discussion is that's what these people did. We're not like that. We must make sure this never happens again. And it seems to me that what's missing from our whole public discussion is an understanding of what we're going to look at in Romans chapter 6, which is sin. Now, when I use the word sin, and when we use the word sin, there is an instant reaction. And if we played a word game right now and I said sin, you have to bounce back what you think. There are different ways to approach this. But this is very, very serious and it's very important. If you're not a Christian and, and you're here and you're saying, what are we talking about in terms of sin? What does that mean? Or a religious person may often think sin is what other people do. Uh, they'll often argue, I'm not perfect, but I do my duty, and I serve God, and basically I'm okay. I'm not like other people. There are Christians who have a better understanding and believe that Jesus died to take away their sins, but they think they take sin lightly and they think, well, God will forgive anyway, so what does it really matter? And some of you will be here today and your view of sin is, means that your life is fake. Even as a Christian, you're living a fake life because you don't dare face up to the reality 
of what's going on, and you will stumble and you will fall. And then there are others of us here who are Christians, and we know what sin is, and we struggle with the guilt of it all the time, and we struggle with the guilt of feeling guilty. Uh, And we know we're not supposed to feel guilty, or we know that God has taken away our sin, and yet we don't feel like it. We feel overwhelmed, we feel crushed, we feel burdened. So, all of this, I think, is um, where we come in and what we're going to look at. Let me go on to the first slide and let, here's just a couple of questions from the catechism, which is, when I was thinking about what is sin, I was thinking, go to the dictionary, and I went to the dictionary, it wasn't much help, Um, and then I went to the catechism, and it was a lot more help. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Actually, the dictionary says, sin is an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law, and that's the important thing. Sin is ultimately against God. If if you murder somebody, you tell lies, you do all these other things that we recognize as sins because they're against humanity, that's also against God because human beings are made in the image of God and it's against the law of God. I like question 18. Again, don't worry too much about it. Um, If it just, I thought it summarized beautifully what we've already seen in Romans up to this point and this chapter. What is the sinfulness of that state into which man fell? The sinfulness of the state into which man fell includes the guilt of Adam's first sin, the lack of the righteousness which he had at first, and the corruption of every part of his nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual sins which flow from it. Okay, that just simply means every single person in this building here today is sinful. Everyone outside it is sinful. All of us have sin. It's not that we look around and say, well, they're a sinner and, I, and they're not. We all are. This particular chapter that we're going to look at, and we will read some of it in a moment, um, is, I think, in one way, a difficult chapter. And it's because of that, it's been caused, it's caused a great deal of distress to many people because some people think it teaches a kind of sinless perfection that you can become a Christian and you can be without sin. But it doesn't teach that. What it does teach in the part we look at this morning is that we are, uh, because we are in Christ, we believe in Christ, we're set free from the penalty of sin. And then the second part we're going to look at is uh, this evening is that we're delivered from the power of sin. And for those of you who really want to look at this in some more depth, uh, a book that is still streets ahead of anything I've ever read in it is uh, John Owen's book on sin and temptation. Now, the image that's used in the chapter is one of being in two kingdoms. You're in one kingdom, which is the kingdom of Adam, kingdom of the devil, kingdom, uh, the old regime dominated by that, and then there's the kingdom of Christ. So let's go on to look, read the first four verses of Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. He says we're dead to sin. We have died to sin. He's writing to Christians and he's saying we have died to sin. 
What does that mean? It cannot mean, it does not mean that there's no sin in our lives, that if you're a Christian, you don't have any sin. Why do we know it cannot mean that? Because he then goes on to talk about Christians who sin. And Paul doesn't contradict himself. Dead to sin doesn't mean that we are unresponsive to sin, because those of us who are believers, we know that. It's, it, you know, imagine somebody saying, I've become a Christian, therefore I am never tempted to do anything wrong. We know that that is false. One of the problems with a lot of the teaching in the church today, and, and I do want to mention one person in particular who's done a great deal of harm, especially to women, and that is uh, Joyce Meyer, who uh, on God TV and other things as well, teaches lots and lots of good things, if you like, that inspire people and motivate people. But one of the things she teaches that is, for me, just appalling and does so much damage is that she teaches that she's been delivered from sin, she no longer sins, and you can be delivered like that as well. And it's an appalling teaching, but mainly because it's false. Uh, It's even, I think, sinful to say it. But the trouble is, and I, I think some of us here... I've certainly done this, and I suspect others have done it or maybe are still doing it. And that is we so minimize the impact of sin on our lives that we end up living an unreal and a fake life thinking we're better than we are. Or perhaps we can go the opposite extreme, it seems the opposite extreme, where we end up despairing because we're not as good as we think we should be. And then there becomes a problem because we think God's word tells us we can be sinless or without the power of sin, delivered from the power of sin. And then when it doesn't happen, we doubt God's word. Or we end up being dishonest about ourselves and our own experience. And I think that's why so many Christians are self-righteous because we we think we're better than we are. And here's how deceitful we are. Even in saying that, I can be somebody who goes, look how good I am because I know I'm not good. And you just get yourself caught up in this whole mess. So what does this actually mean? It means, as he puts it, very simple. We are no longer slaves to sin. Sin is no longer our master, as he will say in verse 14. It means that we're delivered from the absolute tyranny of sin. It means that we died to sin through our union with Christ. Now, what's he talking about here? He's talking about Jesus dying on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die to sin in himself, did he? He didn't die so that he could no longer sin. Jesus never sinned. The obvious meaning is that Jesus bore our sins and carried our sins. And when we die to sin, we're dying to the condemnation of sin. In in 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says, we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. So what he's speaking about here is this. All human beings sin. All human beings, therefore, are dead in sins and trespasses. All human beings can escape from that. And all human beings deserve the judgment of God upon sin. But when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sins of his people. And those who believe and trust in him can say that when Jesus died, I died to sin. There's a connection. Uh, As in the previous chapter, we saw the connection between us and Adam and the believer and Christ. 
And so he speaks of baptism here. Now, what he's, he's saying, he's speaking of baptism as, as a kind of in initiation, right? We come into the kingdom of God. Um, there's a connection between us, between Christ and his people, and baptism symbolizes that unity. He's not just saying that we are like Christ. He's not just saying that baptism symbolizes the death of Christ. And nor is he teaching what some churches teach, that if you're baptized, then the baptism itself saves you. Paul's just spent the first part of Romans telling us that we're saved by faith alone. He's not suddenly going to say we're saved by faith, but we're also saved by baptism. And that the baptism, whether whatever form of baptism you take, immersion, sprinkling, or pouring, uh, that our baptism would save us. He's saying, no, the baptism is, connects us with the burial of Christ. And that just as Christ was buried, so with him were buried our sins. Christ's death is a death to sin. Our linking to Christ, our being part of Christ, means that we've died to sin. So that is a, it, it is a very intense um, and in some ways uh, it takes a huge amount to unpack and we might say, well, wait a minute, I don't get that. I need to think about it. Well, good. Think about it because it's a very important thing. He's saying that because Jesus died on the cross, those who believe and trust in Jesus have died to the power and the, the consequences of the sin that is within us. We will come back to see how we're going to deal with sin if we don't accept that, if we can. But uh, let's go on to look at verses 5 to 10. He goes on to say, if we've been united with him in a death like his, so if you, if you believe in Jesus and you trust in Jesus, then you're united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He said when Jesus died... We died to sin. When Jesus rose from the dead, he's saying we can experience and know his life. Now, there's something very important here, actually. When we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus, we talk about it as it is, as a historical event, which it is. But what Paul is saying here is we can also talk about it as something that we can experience and share in ourselves right now. So as we hear about the death of Jesus, and we do preach Christ crucified, as we hear about that, we, we, we can experience that awareness of it was my sin that nailed him there. And as we hear about the resurrection of Christ, we can experience the resurrection of Christ. It's a bit like when you go to watch a film, and um, you may be going to see a film in black and white, and then you're going to see it in color. And then you're told you can really experience it because you can get 3D. 
And apparently there's now 4D as well, so that you get the things coming out of you from the screen, and the, when there's an earthquake, the cinema shakes because they put sensors under your seat, uh, and there's all kinds. And someone will come up with 5D or something, I'm sure, uh, at some point. And people will come out of the cinema and say, oh, it's almost like being there. Except, of course, it wasn't. Because although there was an earthquake in the film and you felt that there was an earthquake, in your mind you knew that there wasn't. But I think what Paul is doing here is I think he's saying to us that there's something that happened when Jesus died on the cross and when Jesus rose from the dead. And it's something that continues that we can share in and we can experience. Verse 5 and verse 8 in this chapter he says, if we have, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. It's important that these are things in the future. Because, as we will see, the resurrection of Christ is at work within us now. His power is within us now. But there's something that's still to come. There's something that's still to be. Um... I liked, I've, I've quoted it many times, and I'm, I, I know Murdo didn't make this up, but our, our old elder, Murdo McLeod, used to ask him, how are you? And he would say, um, well, I'll not do the Lewis accent, but he said, I'm, and he did it very slowly as well, I'm not what I was, I'm not what I shall be, but I'm thankful I am what I am. And actually, that's a pretty good perspective. I'm, I'm not what I shall be. Uh, I, I wonder for those of us who are Christians if we spend so much time trying to preserve what we've got here and now that we don't look forward to what we shall be um, the, the, the bodies we will have in heaven the sinlessness in heaven which is for me incomprehensible because I've never lived a sinless life I don't know what it's like but it's, it's, it's a great hope it's a great vision that there will be nothing that is spoilt in heaven. And, and that, Paul is, is saying that. He's saying, we're going to live. We're going to have a resurrection like his, and we're going to live like him. We believe that we will also live with him. But that power that raised Jesus from the dead and that guarantees our own resurrection, that power that Paul speaks of in chapter 1 and verse 4, through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That power, says Paul, is now at work in us. And so he then talks about how, in answer to the question, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He, in answer to that question, he explains no we can't do that. You see, what had happened earlier, and I probably should have said this earlier, what had happened earlier is that Paul had said, as, as sin increases, God's grace increases. And so some people were looking and saying, well, if that's true, why don't we have more sin? Um, there was a, a monk, Rasputin, at the uh, time of the Russian Revolution, um, Made famous, sadly, some of you will only know him because of Boney M. Ra Ra Rasputin, lover of the Russian queen. And some of you are already nodding your heads and jigging, which is really desperate. 
So those of you who are younger and who do not know who Boney M are or what that song is, don't bother. It's not a classic. Um, but it shows you how things stick because there are people here who had no idea who Rasputin was except he was the lover of the Russian queen because they heard it in a rubbish song by uh, Boney M. Anyway, Rasputin, Gregory Rasputin, to give him his full name, was the evil genius who seemed to have bewitched the Romanov family in its last days of power as the czars of Russia. And what he taught and believed was, well, whether he believed it or not, I don't know, but certainly what he taught was that the more experience of sin you had, the more you could repent and the more you could know the grace of God. So the idea was you go out and sin as much as you can and then you would know the grace of God more. He's an extreme example But that's what Paul is speaking about. And that kind of teaching, which is called antinomianism, is one that uh, still exists today. And Paul answers this and he says, no, how can we, how can we? We can't do this. We've been baptized into the death of Christ. We've been united with him in his death. And then in verse 6 he says, we know that our old self was crucified. Now I have a real problem with this because I've often misunderstood it often understood it as to say there's your old self and then there's the new nature that Jesus gives you and if the old self is crucified it's dead but here's my problem if my old man as they used to say is dead why do I still sin and I think it's much better to understand it in this way that Paul I think Paul is what he's teaching here is there's an identity we have with Adam with the old man Adam It's not that it's just part of my nature, but this is the whole of what I was before I was converted. And he's saying that old self without Christ was crucified on the cross and the body of sin has been rendered powerless. He's not, by the way, when he says body of sin, I don't believe he means the physical body because he's not teaching that the physical body itself is sinful, but what we do, how how we use our, our bodies for good or for evil. The, the Christian view of the body is not Rasputin's view, actually, or the, the Gnostic view, or the Buddhist view, actually. The Christian's view of the body is informed by the Bible's teaching about creation, the incarnation of Jesus, who had a human body, and the resurrection. Here, our old self means our fallen, self-centered nature. And living like that, verse 23, which we'll look at this evening, says the wages of that is death. But here we're told death has no mastery over Jesus. Jesus defeated death. Jesus rose from the grave. And again, it's important the language that's used. Jesus wasn't resuscitated. Jesus wasn't even resurrected like Lazarus who would die again. Jesus, in the words of Revelation 1.18, is the living one. Behold, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. So Paul is saying, there's a risen Jesus. He said, I met him. Boy, did he meet him. As he was going to persecute and kill the followers of Jesus, Jesus came to him and changed his life and the life of the world, I think, forever. He's the living one. He now lives. And because he lives, 
We then have the power to defeat sin. We don't have the power to defeat sin because we're good. We don't have the power to defeat sin because um, God has taken away completely our sinful nature. But we have the power to defeat sin because we look all the time to Jesus. That's why defeating sin is not about your willpower and it's not about your resolutions. It is about you understanding and being identified with Christ and the power of Christ. You know what the willpower is? I, I don't know. Am I, is that me that's doing that? Uh, sorry, Jonathan. I don't know um, how many of you have tried dieting. Maybe some of you have even succeeded. Some of you clearly haven't. But on, <laughs> Let me rephrase that. I, I clearly haven't. Um, you try to diet, right? And let's say you do one of these calorie diets, you know, so you're counting your 600 or your 1200 or your 1800 or whatever it is. And you're doing pretty well. So you start off in the morning, that's dead easy. Because you get up, you have a coffee, that's fine. Uh, you make it through a lunch and yeah, you manage with a bowl of soup. But see by the time you go home, and you can tell I'm speaking from bitter experience, that your wife has left stuff out in the kitchen, like cream buns and stuff. And there's just biscuits and, and things. And you think it won't do any harm. It really won't do any harm to uh, just have one or to do one. And, and, you know, you might actually last the whole day. You might even last a whole week. But at some point, you are going to give in. Well, if that's what we're like with hunger, maybe some people are like that with alcohol or whatever it is. Some people are like that with pornography. Doesn't sin is always like that? Sin is much deeper and much more pervasive than that. If you know how deep sin runs in your life, it's almost unbelievable that you can overcome sin. I think that's why some of us give up because we've had years and years of experience of fighting this battle, and we know, we just know that we cannot do it, we cannot make it. And Paul comes to us and says, yes, but who you are died when Jesus died on the cross and you experience also the resurrection of Jesus. So actually you can if you stop looking at yourself. Our new life begins when we are born again, when we become believers. We're tied in to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Well, let's look at how that works out in just the last few verses that we'll look at this morning, verses 11 to 14. <clears throat> in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. It's a kind of summary telling us that we need to recognize who we are in Christ. And to put our new identity into effect by dethroning sin in our daily behavior. We're told that... We no longer live under law, but under grace. We're in the new kingdom of Christ. 
We're to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Now, an important thing here is this is not make-believe. This is not you saying, okay, I'm just going to shut my eyes and I'm going to believe that I can defeat sin. Paul will go on in Romans 7 to use an illustration about marriage. Can a married woman live as though she were single? Yes, you can. But every time she looks at her wedding ring, she remembers who she is. And what Paul is doing is reminding us that we need to remember who we are. John Stott puts it beautifully. Regenerate Christians should no more contemplate a return to unregenerate living than adults to their childhood, married people to their singleness, or discharged prisoners to their prison cell. Here's the point. If you believe in Jesus, you are a Christian. It doesn't mean that you don't sin, but it means that you have a far greater incentive not to sin. And so we, we have to fight against the sin within us. We have to, what Owen calls, mortify it, put it to death, by offering ourselves to God. We don't let sin reign in our mortal bodies. We don't offer the parts of our bodies to wickedness. We offer them to God. We, um, the tune that we sang for the last hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, Take my hands and let them be consecrated, Lord, to thee. See, the trouble with the Christianity that says, well, I know I'm a sinner, I know God's forgiven my sin, and I'm just getting on with life, is you you haven't grasped both the greatness of your sin and the power of it, but you haven't grasped the greatness and the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus to be at work in your life now. So I want to go back... um, In part two, we're going to look at how those of us who are Christians can live in a can live a Christian life in a sinful world, even though we still battle against sin. But let's go back to where we came in and let's apply it. Those of those who are not yet Christians, how are you going to deal with your sin? You may have heard a lot of this and you may think none of that makes any sense to me. What do you mean dead to sin and Jesus died on the cross and and Jesus rose from the dead and, and all the other things that are used there? Well, let me take it back right to the very most simple and basic level. Are you actually prepared to admit that you commit sin? That you do things that are wrong, that you think things that are wrong? Or are you going to be like these politicians and presenters who talk about other people's sins as though they would never do them? How can we ever prevent this happening again? Because there are these bad people. Until they recognize that the badness is within them, they'll never deal with it. And until you recognize that the badness is within you, you will never deal with it. How are, we, how are you going to deal with your sin? Well, first of all, you have to recognize it. And I I admit, all of this is completely useless to you if you don't recognize that you have sin and that you are sinful. If you do recognize it, it's largely because the Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. So, I mean, I I, I will pray something for you that it's not particularly pleasant. I pray God's blessing on you. I pray that you will come to know Jesus. But I pray 
that God will so work in your life that whatever age you are, whatever background you are, whatever religion or whatever it is about you, whoever you are, that God will convict you of your need of him and that you, you're aware of your sin. Because then, once you become aware of it, you have to admit you can't deal with it. Many people spend all their lives trying to atone for sin. There's a book by Ian McEwan called Atonement. And it's about a girl who committed a, a, a terrible sin when she was 14, 15 years old, accused somebody of um, basically abuse and rape that he didn't do, and the consequences that came from that. And the book is really about how all her life she tried to make atonement for it and never could. It's very interesting that McEwen wrote that book because he doesn't believe in God, he doesn't believe in the Bible, and yet he managed to get sin and atonement very, very well in that, although for him... There was no atonement. But for us there is. Because the great news for every single person here who acknowledges that they're a sinner is that there is someone who takes away all our sins. And that, of course, is Jesus in his grace. What about the religious person? person who thinks they're a Christian or maybe another religion? You need to recognize that religion will never deal with your sin. You can say as many Hail Marys as you want. You can do as many pilgrimages to Mecca as you want. You can go to as many Bible studies as you like. None of it, none of it is going to take away your sin because your sin is too deep. It's too ingrained. It's too self-absorbed. And even your good works are like filthy rags because you're still self-absorbed. We all are. Religion can't deal with your sin, whatever name you give that religion. It just leads to hypocrisy and self-righteousness, which is why religion is such a pervasive and ugly force in this world. Because it just pours, if you like, petrol on the fire. Owen talks about those who are religious and... uh, They don't have the great outward sins. They don't commit murder. They don't commit adultery. But he says in many ways their sins are worse because their pride and their self-righteousness and their hypocrisy is a greater stench in God's eyes. If you are such a religious person, you, you may have listened to me saying to somebody who doesn't believe, who doesn't know very much or who doesn't think there is sin, You may even have nodded your head and said, yes, that's right. They need to be dealt with. But actually, you need to be dealt with as well. As the Christian who takes sin lightly, for all your words, for all your acceptance of right doctrine, for all your joining in worship, for all your prayer, for all your Bible reading, yet there are far too many of us who live suppressed lives without real knowledge of forgiveness in our lives, because we haven't acknowledged this and we are not free. And as I said, we'll look at that this evening. But let me uh, go on to the next slide. I just want to share something with you from Owen. I would love to have shared the lot, but I won't be able to. Um, this is what he says. There are dangers, right? We can be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And here's the most chilling thing for me. There are people here who are Christians. And the trouble is... You've let yourself over the years be hardened so that even this word bounces off you. 
you've got, you've got all your defenses. You're so much harder to reach than the non-Christian in some ways. And Owen talks about that danger of being hardened by deceitfulness. There's a danger of great temporal correction. In other words, what he means is God may punish us even in this life. And there's a loss of peace and strength. And that for me was the big one. It really hit me when I read this. To have peace with God, to have strength to walk before God is the sum of the great promises of grace. In these things is the life of our souls. Without them in some comfortable measure to live is to die. What good would our lives do if we see not the face of God sometimes in peace, if we have not some strength to walk with him? See, that, that's the problem here. There are far too many of us as Christians who will accept the doctrines and tick the box and pass the questions. And if ever we were asked, we could give the right answer. But our lives are not at peace and there's no strength in our walk with God because we've never faced up to the reality of sin in our own lives. And that, says Owen, leads to three great evils. It grieves the holy and blessed spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ is wounded afresh by it, and it takes away a man's usefulness in his generation. And we'll not be sexist, we'll say a woman's as well. See, There are some who've heard the word of God, who have believed and who've rejoiced. And then the deceits of this world, the sinfulness, the the, the deceit of wealth. These weeds have come up and they've choked our spiritual usefulness. So although we still believe, although we still come along, although we're still involved to some degree, yet we don't have peace and we don't have strength because we've never taken our sin seriously. We just turn away from it. And then there's the Christian who's crippled by guilt. Trouble here is, of course, there's a guilt that's good in that it's an acknowledgement of our sin before God. But there's a guilt that's from the pit of hell. Because if you know your sin and you know what Christ has done, then you would know, as Isaiah was told, that your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Some Christians drive themselves into illness because they are just weighed down by guilt. They listen to the accuser. They do not know. And, and, and the trouble is, they, they almost think it's being hum, humble to acknowledge their own sin and to look at themselves. But it's not being humble because it's still self-absorbed. What we need to do is look away and look to Jesus and look to his death and see that when he died, our sin died and was punished. And look at his, his life and his resurrection and to see that we are going to share in that, but we also do share in it now. So if you're a Christian who's crippled by guilt, in reality you're being crippled by the devil because you're listening to him and not listening to God. And if you have the kind of mind that goes, oh, now I feel guilty about that, basically snap out of it. You're still looking at yourself. Stop looking at yourself. Look at Christ. William Tyndale, this is the last, let's put up the last slide, says this, and I've translated it a wee bit into modern English because he's the guy who originally put the uh, Bible into English. Remember that Christ did not make this atonement that you should anger God again, nor did he die for your sins that you should still live in them. Nor did he clean you that you should return as a swine to your old puddle again. 
but rather that you should be a new creature and live a new life after the will of God and not of the flesh. See, if you're not a Christian, you have to deal with that sin and you can't and you need to come to Christ. But if you are a Christian, every single day you need to remember that you have come to Christ, that you are a new creature. You should not return to your, to your as Tyndale puts it, to your old puddle again. And we do it so frequently and we do it so easily. And it's why the greatest cure for our sin is to be able to look at and to see the glory of God in the face of Christ and what Christ has done for us. So, if you are a Christian who's taken sin lightly, I plead with you not to do that. I plead with you to get real with God. You're living a fake life. It's, not, it's like being in a marriage and pretending. It just doesn't do any good. You need to get real and know that there is mercy at the throne of God. And if you are crippled by guilt, you, you need to realize just how great the salvation that Christ has wrought, that it covers every single one of your sins and everything that you feel guilty about. And I think for all of our days, and we may not like this, we may think, oh, if only the Christian life was one of ease, going to heaven on beds of ease, if only that was true. It's not true. You're going to struggle, you're going to fight until your dying day, and on your deathbed, you are going to rejoice because the fight is over and the victory is won. But until that day, you're going to have it. But as a Christian, you know that the victory is the Lord's and he's going to win whatever. So strangely enough, you can deal with all of this and you can fight it, but in absolute confidence that you won't lose. All that I think Paul is trying to do is to remind us not to let ourselves be crippled by an inadequate view of sin and an inadequate view of Christ. Amen. Lord, bless your word to us. Each of us needs it, perhaps from different perspectives in different ways. And yet each of us comes to you as those who need to be cleansed and forgiven. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you that there is mercy at the mercy seat. We thank you, O Lord, that the power of the resurrected Christ is the power that is available to us now. Help us to walk from, as we go from this place, even in newness of obedience. And those of us who don't know you, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would come to know you. In your name, amen. Let's finish by singing the song um, Grace. It's the song that we learned from City Elias, your grace that leads this sinner home from death to life forever and sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by merit. Your grace that reaches far and wide to every tribe and nation has called my heart to enter in the joy of your salvation. It's by grace alone that we stand. Let's stand and sing to God's praise and please remain standing for the benediction.